Hello, I'm Drew Smith. And I'm Joe Simpson. And welcome to Looking Out the Podcast, auditory sidekick to the newsletter in which we connect the dots across mobility, design, and culture. Coming up in this show, Apple expands its CarPlay offer, much to the consternation of many, and for many different reasons. Micromobility continues to confound and excite in almost equal measure. And we reflect on the importance of getting a name just right. Right, let's get this show on the road. First up, Apple's CarPlay. CarPlay, see what I did there? At their recent Worldwide Developers Conference, Apple showed a new, much expanded version of CarPlay. Now, if we're to believe the demo, this new system goes well beyond the current one's ability to mirror the driver's phone on a central screen. In an attempt to pander to the worst excesses of a screen-obsessed automotive industry, Apple demonstrated the ability for CarPlay to take over the driver's display, the center stack where you traditionally find the navigation system, and they even proposed extending their interface right across the car in front of the passenger. Now, on the one hand, this makes total sense. Car makers have struggled to make usable, beautiful, and consistent digital interfaces for years. With the advent of the original CarPlay, Apple gave consumers the choice of bypassing the crappy OEM system for all of their entertainment and navigation needs. The fact that 79% of new car buyers in the US will only consider a new car if it has the current generation of CarPlay fitted shows just how successful Apple have been in disintermediating the OEM's user experiences in this space. But on the other hand, Apple just seems to be perpetuating the worst excesses of the more screens movement that has captivated car companies in recent years. Well, most of them anyway. Mazda, for example, has made a point of making smaller screens further away from the casual reach of drivers. And, as I pointed out in the most recent edition of the Looking Out newsletter, Mini, along with designer Paul Smith, has made a point of making their most recent concept car collaborations entirely screenless. Both the Mini Strip, which we saw in 2021, and the more recent Recharged, both leave it to drivers to bring their own device and let them choose the interface that suits them best. Now, in that same newsletter, Drew makes the argument that the new CarPlay is simply Apple catering to the short to medium term needs of car makers. Car makers who, some might say, desperately need help to create consistent, coherent and usable interfaces. But based on the Apple demo's naivety, and more-is-more attitude to screen real estate, it seems like Apple is really missing a trick. So, why is this interesting? Well, Apple has historically prided itself on being leaders in the introduction and popularisation of better ways of interacting with technology. The new CarPlay, if not exactly a retrograde step, feels like a lacklustre response to the very real safety, usability and sustainability challenges posed by the proliferation of in-car touchscreens. What do you reckon, Joe? I think there are a couple of interesting things here. That first point 
is the one you made about Apple being typically leaders. And everybody is waiting with bated breath for the Apple car, which we believe is coming. And many of the tech commentators on Twitter, certainly when they saw this new version of Apple CarPlay, were like, oh, well, this is it. This is all they need. And I think that's quite an interesting perspective. The idea that if Apple just dominate a screen-dominated interior, then yeah, Apple have the opportunity to completely dominate the car experience. To a certain extent, it doesn't matter whose car you're in, it's you're having an Apple experience. But if you're going to do that, you would expect from Apple to have a experience which feels very different, which feels leading, which feels very Apple. And okay, there'll be people listening to this who will say, but of course it is. It's the same types of icons. It's the stuff I know well. It's looks my, 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 my iPhone. And we've heard, you know, a lot of kind of sort of this rhetoric of consumers just want an iPhone on wheels. But it feels like a big missed trick. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything that we haven't seen before. It doesn't feel like if I just go on a purely surface-based level, the UI is anything to write home about. A lot of the kind of examples that we saw and discussed together felt like, to be honest, not as good as some of the better stuff we've seen from some of the leading OEMs recently, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's a, it, it's a really good point. I think the other thing that we probably should address when we talk about this, though, is what actually sits under the hood and what else Apple is going to be bringing to the game. Um, there are two things here. One is kind of ease of ease of commerce or ease of transaction within the vehicle. Now, if we think about the penetration of things like Apple Pay, for example, and the ease with which um, you can now use that, particularly in the United States, to to kind of complete purchases, it's not hard to imagine. Um, Apple being able to take a huge amount of friction out of the car charging, car refueling um, uh, palaver that we currently have to deal with. I think the other thing um, that is really interesting, and it was a point that was raised by one of our readers, actually, in some feedback that they provided to us. Uh, he's also a fellow podcaster. I hope you're listening in. Um, was that actually this provides just another data acquisition pipe for Apple. And the concern that this person raised was, like, what the hell is happening with all of that data? And isn't this just another example of essentially a tech monopolist um, sucking up huge amounts of, of, of user information for God knows what end? And I retorted that, yeah, okay, that's probably a fairly valid point, and I'd rather my data going to Apple than, say, a car company or Google. Um, you know, Apple currently has the strongest position in the marketplace when it comes to protecting users' data privacy. Uh, but it is still a really interesting question. And I know for a fact that a lot of automakers have been trying to work out how to capture and monetize data on their own. So it remains to be seen what Apple's going to do in that space. So I think, to me, you raise a kind of what you're talking about there is a question of trust. and. Who are consumers more likely to trust these days? A car maker or a tech brand? I think that's a really interesting question because if you ask people, I genuinely don't know who they'd say. I think, you know, 
people's relationships with car makers is kind of an interesting one. We've discussed this in the past, the mediation through dealers, national sales organization. Do you really have a relationship with the kind of with the OEM, with the car brand? And equally, we've seen a huge backlash against big tech and that kind of data sucking sort of situation. And I think this leads me on to a bigger existential question, which I kind of touched on in the piece I wrote, which is, it feels like there's a fight going on for what happens in the interior of a car in the future. And to our correspondence point about a kind of data suck, I think there are a lot of people out there who say, actually, Apple, Google, the big tech brands role here is not to kind of be great at making car. It's to be great at making sure they can serve you their content, that they have your eyeballs, that they can monetize you when you're in a vehicle in the future. And the way we're going, everything is going to play into their lap. But the kind of fly in the ointment here is that if we speak to people who really kind of, I think, know their onions on this stuff. The truly, truly, truly driverless, you know, get in at your front door, arrive somewhere, some hours away, somewhere else without having to interact with a car, driverless car, is still some way away. And until that happens, is there a case that you as a driver still need to be paying full attention or a lot of attention to what's happening around you on the road? And therefore, what's the kind of scenario where you're going to be done something like where something like having advertising served to you in the car is actually something that's right. okay. Right. Well, it's going to be an interesting move for sure. And it will be something that we'll be watching with interest. But from looking at visions of the far future to something much closer to the present, let's take a look at the continued travise of shared micromobility in Europe. Now, for anyone who's been following me lately, I will have sounded like the shadow of a guy called Horace Dediu. For those of you not familiar with Horace, he's the founder of Micromobility Industries and the originator of the term micromobility itself. It's a term we now widely use to describe a class of transportation device that is sub 500 kilograms. So think electric scooters, bikes, and weird and wonderful little things like the Renault Twizy, and the recently revealed Nimbus, a tilting, fully enclosed three-wheeler. We'll post a link in the show notes so you can check it out. So why exactly have I been sounding like his shadow? Well, I went to the Micro Mobility Amsterdam conference recently, and blow me down if it wasn't like a breath of fresh air. Yes, after a few years in the micromobility doldrums, I probably still haven't got over not taking that job at Shared Scooter Company Voy. I'm a full-on fanboy again, a follower of the future according to Horace. This was a show that was full of opportunities to reimagine the public realm, starting with how we move ourselves and our stuff through it and around it. It was possible to see the future of cities there, a future that is cleaner, quieter, and much more humane. And compared to the last big motor show I went to, Geneva 2019, it was more optimistic, more collaborative, more mature, more fun, and way more diverse. This was definitely not a show for the pale, male, and stale crowd. But in the world of micromobility, it's not all roses. 
Yes. As I report in the latest issue, shared scooter companies, Foy being one of them, have come under fire for blitzscaling their businesses in towns like my own, Gothenburg here in Sweden. This has meant that thousands of scooters have been dumped on the street, causing visual pollution, creating safety hazards and no small number of injuries. In a rather severe crackdown, several city authorities ordered large numbers of the fleet be removed, reducing their density and therefore accessibility to users. And an after-midnight lockout has meant that those that remained were all but useless for those trying to get home after public transport had closed for the night. Now, to give the industry its dues, shared micromobility has really only been a thing since 2017. So it's quite understandable that there have been some teething troubles. But all signs point to successful players learning quickly from their mistakes and becoming net contributors to a new mobility landscape. So why is this interesting? Well, somewhere in the middle ground, I'm certain that there's a wonderful compromise between cities, citizens and micromobility companies to be had. Cities that cater to micromobility, like Paris, Amsterdam and Copenhagen, are more livable and more lovable as a result. But we need to get the balance right, don't we, Drew? Yeah, we do. And I guess one of the really interesting points to have come out of Micromobility Amsterdam was the focus on data. There's that word again. Um, being used to really help uh, clean up the act of micromobility players uh, within the cities that they're that they're operating in. And it was interesting to hear the consultants from um, Deloitte actually talking about how in new tender processes for micromobility organizations, it would be very difficult for them to be awarded the contract to operate in a city if they weren't opening up their data to cities and making it easy to understand how scooters were both being used across the city and how they were being abused as well. And it's really important for micromobility players these days to have kind of plans in place to modify um, user behavior to sort of reduce the negative impact on the public realm. So that's something that I found really interesting. The other thing that I found really interesting was um, Amsterdam's kind of continued refusal to allow um, e-scooters, for example, um, to ride within the city here. Now, having recently been uh, in France where there are no limits on e-scooter use as far as I'm aware, uh, it was quite terrifying to watch some of the really fast e-scooters and, you know, there are some on the market these days that can do 100 kilometers an hour, um, watching them dice with cars uh, and push bikes and e-bikes. And the thing that you really start to notice is kind of speed differential. And we're actually even noticing this now in Amsterdam with e-bikes sort of being much faster than, you know, the good old sit up and beg push bikes that most of us get around on in this city. And it does create a, if not an outright safety issue, then one of kind of discomfort for people who aren't able to move as fast on dedicated micromobility infrastructure like bike lanes, for example. 
Right. I mean, I was going to ask you, where do you think this is working in terms of cities? Because, you know, we've seen Paris tender down to three operators. We saw Copenhagen chuck the e-scooter operators out in 2020, or at least the free floating model before then allowing it back. We've seen, as you just articulated, Amsterdam continue to kind of not bring forward the kind of e-scooter model. But it's been very big here in Scandinavia. And I think the point you're making about speed compatibility is interesting when we look at which cities it's working in. Because as I wrote in my piece in the newsletter, I think quite a lot of this has to do with infrastructure potentially. Yeah, you, you, you're absolutely right. Um, and the other the, the other sort of point about infrastructure which also relates to this point around sort of discipline and reducing the impact on the public realm is that when we're talking about shared micromobility, um, a lot of the sort of reduction in impact comes from having to install infrastructure to be able to store and charge sort of shared micromobility fleets, right? And uh, there's kind of a, it's not so much a chicken and the egg, but who's going to pay for that? Um, debate that goes on between cities and shared micromobility operators. There was a very distinct undertone um, at the conference that suggested that perhaps shared micromobility was not itself the future. That's not to say that micromobility itself is not the future, but it's perhaps shared micromobility that is not the future. Um, you have problems with the fleets. You have problems with impact on public realm. You have problems with safety, public liability. Um, you have problems with sort of providing charging and storage infrastructure. All of that stuff starts to go away or is ameliorated when it's individuals who own their scooters, when it's individuals who are responsible for their micromobility device. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next kind of 18 to 24 months, particularly given the profitability challenges that many micromobility players continue to have. And with that, we come on to our final section and the importance of nailing a name. Twingo, Avontime, Actros, Vectra, Velsatis, Rado, Calibra. Yes, for people of a certain generation, the mere sound of these names, as Drew has just so ably demonstrated, will conjure up very clear images of the cars that they are attached to and the images that those cars themselves project. All of these names were the child of a chap who you will likely never have heard of. His name is Manfred Gotta, and he is the naming expert responsible for some of the most iconic automotive names of the 90s and noughties. So how does he do it? From his website comes this choice little snippet, run through Google Translate from its original German. What is required is to penetrate the soul of the product, the company and the people working there. To put oneself in their shoes, so to speak, in order to find the names that best communicate the message both internally 
in order to ensure future recognition and enable identification. He would also spend time with the customer, saying, The most important thing is to listen to the customer and understand what he or she really wants. Which is very different from asking them for what they want, because as any good researcher knows, most of the time, people don't know what they want, and they'll give you a widely accepted and broadly acceptable answer. But... By listening to people describe their fears, their hopes and aspirations, it's possible to build up a palette of positive associations that can be drawn together into a name that captures their ideal future state. And if you get the naming right, you have something that will endure. With Goddard saying, At some point during a product's lifetime, almost everything changes. The advertising, the packaging, the price, and even the product itself All of these changes are inevitable as times change too. Tastes in colour or typography are subject to the trend of the times and the product must also adapt to the times or, even better, be ahead of its time. With all these changes, it is only the brand name that preserves the identity of the product and the trust in its qualities in all of these upheavals. And most provocatively, he says, without a name or designation, chaos reigns. So, why is this interesting? Well, in an age of impermanence, it seems the value of a durable and differentiated name is only going to become more important. Now, Joe, I remember when if you walked into a BMW dealer, you bought a 3, a 5, a 7, or if you were really bloody lucky, you bought an 8. Now you walk into a BMW dealer and... And you don't know which way to look. (laughs) Now, like, call me crazy, but surely this impacts people's ability to kind of recognize and aspire to a a sequence of products to be able to kind of grow up with a brand. I mean, you walk into a BMW dealership, like, how do you know which one's right for you? Right. I mean, I think a lot of this is to do with the sense of continuity as you say and brand building and you know we talked about that idea of impermanence and i think we live in really turbulent times and i personally think that when things change and everything seems to be changing and turbulent and getting faster Actually, what a lot of people do is they look for surety. They look for things they know. They look for things that have endured for a long time. They turn to brands that they trust. They turn to names that they understand and know. And some of that is what we're talking about here, right? I mean, again, I'm reminded of uh, the minimalist Mazda that we were talking about before within the context of, of interface design. But if you think about their product range now, Two, three, CX-5, Mazda 6. Okay, the MX-30 is a bit of a weird one. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the MX-5 has been around almost as long as I have. Uh, So, you know, they have really chosen to kind of stick with this consistency that you're talking about as being so important for people to be able to latch onto and, and essentially to navigate 
you know, a brand landscape in a time of of change. Right. And I think Mazda is an interesting example there because their range is quite small. I think one of the things you're talking about when we look at BMW, there obviously still is a 3 Series, a 5 Series, a 7 Series and an 8 Series. It's just as now a 1 Series, a 2 Series, a 2 Series Grand Coupe, a 2 Series Active Tourer, a 2 Series Grand Tourer, I think, or maybe they killed that, uh, you know, a 2 Series Coupe, I think. I, I'm like, I mean, come on, I work in the industry. Yeah, Even I'm bored. I can't remember, I'm and I'm bored, exactly. <laughs> People outside of the industry, they just like, you know, you've lost them. And I think that's what it is with these names. A powerful name also is a hook and it's something that i think we underestimate that people don't want to feel silly and they don't want to have to explain what do you drive you know i drive a master bongo frenzy oh god you had to get that in there you just I mean, had to get that in there didn't you the the, the, <laughs> the, the, the the counterpoint to end all counterpoints well look that's it for the headlines but joe Tell us, what else have you found interesting of late? So uh, I found a few things interesting of late, but one particularly uh, kind of that's jumped out at me is Honda. We were talking about micromobility earlier, and uh, some of our listeners might not know, but Honda have actually, they're one of the, I suppose, they're known as an automotive brand. Obviously, Honda have this very broad range of products from, Planes to lawnmowers to, you know, other agriculture equipment, boats, motors. You know, Honda's basically a motor company, but perhaps best known to most people for cars. But they've set up a dedicated micro-mobility business. Um, And they have a product coming, uh, a new e-scooter that's called Streamo. And... It's quite interesting because in the piece that I'm looking at on Tech Radar, which we can drop into the show notes, um, they talk about how the scooter has actually been designed specifically to help and assist with balancing, um, to reduce the likelihood of falling, reduce the likelihood of accidents. And Honda plans to have this on sale in Japan by the end of the year and in Europe next year. So I think that's an interesting one to watch. How about you? What have you been looking at? Well, there's a piece that I've got coming in the next issue of Looking Out, which is looking at the state of the small car market, particularly in Europe, in light of the impending ban on internal combustion engine uh, or the sale of new cars with internal combustion engines, which I think is coming in, what is it, 2035 from memory? So the EU have just kind of passed a legislation which is for 2035, but there are plenty of countries that are before that. The UK, for instance, I think it's 2030. Obviously, the UK isn't in the EU anymore, but um, yeah, there's there's countries that I think are before 2035, but pan-Europe is 2035. So that makes this article even more interesting. It's something that I've picked up from Bloomberg uh, just today, And it's talking about the fact that although over the past two years, uh, car makers um, sort of committed investments uh, to EV development have doubled, um, but their overall investment in vehicles has not doubled. So essentially, what the research says is that funding for EVs is being taken away from the development of internal combustion in cars. Now, 
If you think that there are going to be internal combustion engine vehicles on sale, give or take for another 15 to 20 years, that means that essentially the powertrains that we've currently got are going to be the ones that we run out with. So it's going to be really interesting to see how manufacturers continue to, uh, to, to market and sell internal combustion engine vehicles when they can no longer kind of update them on their traditional model cycles. Right. And I guess comply with legislation, which for internal combustion engine vehicles is only going to keep getting tougher. You know, we're nearly at the Euro 7 uh, kind of legislation, which I think is quite tough. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be an interesting few years ahead for the internal combustion engine car. Well, that's it for this very first episode of Looking Out. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. And in the interest of experimentation, we would love to get your feedback. If you like the show, go on, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. If you hate the show, drop us an email. Let us know how we can make it better because we'd love to come back for a second go around. Now, for more about the topics in this show, visit our website at automobility.substack.com where you can sign up for the Looking Out newsletter. Looking Out, the podcast was written and presented by Drew Smith and Joe Simpson and produced by Chris Frith. This is Drew Smith and thank you for listening. Listening.